there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about the world of interactive technologies and tech startups, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest was named one of LinkedIn's first 50 influencers and is an entrepreneur, advisor, and investor in interactive technologies and social media with decades of experience to share. But before I introduce you to Christopher Schroeder, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays, and it's got firsthand insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Chris Schroeder, the co-founder and general partner of Next Billion Ventures, which is invested in and advises growth stage tech companies in emerging markets, including Southeast Asia, the Middle East, Africa, and Latin America. Previously, Chris was a co-founder of the Silicon Valley venture capital-backed startup, HealthCentral.com. And he was also the CEO and publisher of Washington Post Newsweek Interactive. Chris's investments have included the global unicorns Vox Media, Ibotta, and Kareem Ridesharing. And his global portfolio includes companies like Mexican fintech lender Minu and Latin American prop tech companies Flat and Mcasa. And in case you don't know what prop tech is, because I didn't, it's an interactive approach to real estate in which technology optimizes the way people research, rent, buy, sell, and manage a property. Chris is also a limited partner in and advisor to leading Silicon Valley venture capital funds and on the investment and advisory committees of two top funds in the Middle East, Saudi Telecom Ventures and Wamda Capital. He's the author of the 2017 bestseller and first book on startups in the Arab world entitled Startup Rising, the Entrepreneurial Revolution, Remaking the Middle East. Chris, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Couldn't be more caffeinated or more ready to go. Thank you so much for having me. Well, as a world traveler and you really are a world traveler. You don't just go and stay for a couple of days. You go and stay for weeks in many of the countries that you visit. I am guessing, Chris, that you are pretty particular about the kind of coffee you brew at home. Very interesting. As an Italian-American, I used to be a fanatic on coffee, not just for the travel, but just from that heritage. And honestly, four years ago, I gave it up. No. And now with my caffeine, I'm a tea guy. And particularly when I spent a lot of time in Asia, and other parts of the world, there's just a wonderful comparison of different teas that I've been able to explore. So I'm, every so often, I smell a whiff of coffee and I miss it, but I'm more of a tea person now. Well, I like both. So do you drink caffeinated tea? Absolutely. Sometimes okay. I need a kick. Fantastic. Well, 
I have no doubt, Chris, that anybody who works with you has to be very well <laughs> caffeinated to keep up with you. Probably. For sure. So you've been in the startup ecosystem for a couple of decades, may even be a yeah. little longer than that. And I'm going to want to talk with you about some of your earlier ventures in a little bit. But why don't we kick things off by learning a bit more about another billion, the next billion ventures that you co-founded. What's your mission? And could you help our listeners understand what it takes to get a venture fund off the ground? So Next Billion is a name. I mean, you know, a lot of people hope that it will be about money, which would be great because I do this in part to be very remunerative or successful for the people who invest in us. And I hope to do well for my family and that kind of stuff. But the Next Billion that we're referring to actually is not money per se. It's the Next Billion human beings around the world who for the first time have access to technology. They have access to all the same video and social media that everybody has and has access to the best professionalism and programming skills and so on who are unleashing themselves in ventures that they're building overall to have very, very large ramifications in their backyards or in their regions or in other parts of the world that very often Americans don't spend a lot of time with. And like any typical venture capital fund, our job is to raise money and deploy that money in the best women and men that we see in the markets that we care about. Our focus is very much in emerging markets. The West, I think, has a lot of competition with some very good investors. China has magnificent investors in doing important things. But we look at three city hubs around the world, Singapore for Southeast Asia, Dubai for the Middle East, a little bit of Saudi Arabia, Sao Paulo, Mexico City, and some other places for Latin America. And we look for the best women and men on the ground who are trying to solve problems for the first time in those markets that could get very large. And because we cover a lot of ground, we partner with local people who have been very successful and have very high integrity. And we hope we bring a lot in our relationships with American companies of success but also with these other companies around the world to be very helpful. The essence of the fund is like any company that you build is you have great talent. And I have wonderful partners who have co-founded this with me, who have spent the last decade or more investing in rising markets with great global incense. We have people on the ground who help keep us honest about what the trends are happening in the ground. But our first job is to raise money, because if we don't raise the money in our fund, we'll deploy some of our own personal money, but we want much more than that to deploy. So I, we spend years, and every venture capital fund will spend years convincing very wealthy individuals, universities, uh, other investment groups who are looking where they can deploy money with someone they can trust. And we've been able to convince some wonderful investors that Next Billion is an interesting thesis with people of character and integrity who can help these entrepreneurs succeed in many corners of the world. I read an article that you posted on LinkedIn in early February. And it was just before the coronavirus took over the world. And ironically, you had just returned from three weeks in ground zero in China. Yeah. You had traveled to Beijing, to Hangzhou, and to Shanghai. And you met with over 70 executives, investors, and academics to try to better understand the rise in technology and innovation in China. And what was super surprising to you that you wrote about in this article, and honestly, Chris, it was super surprising to me too, as somebody who studied China Chinese in school, who lived in China twice, that over the course of those three weeks and all of the meetings that you had, the United States did not come up even once. Yes, that's true. This is a, a very interesting period that we're in right now, and it's uh, not just true of China, but it's true elsewhere. 
with this dispersal of technology, with now 70, 80% of humanity with a smart device, with this talent being unleashed in so many parts of the world overall, the real opportunities for so many people are here. If you and I had this conversation 10 years ago, 20 years ago, almost any company that wanted to be global, almost any company that wanted to have impact somewhere really was aiming to get into the American market or maybe the Western markets overall. And Americans, if they wanted to go abroad, they would go abroad if a market was big enough or if they could have someone build things for them cheap enough. And that was a playbook in a way of the technology world for decades. Well, all of a sudden, people have access to technology, talent is unleashed everywhere. These markets are very large. For the first time, people are having the ability to buy and sell things and bank with technology and overall. And people are building incredibly interesting, successful things on their terms. They're not just merely mimicking what has been built in the West. They're not waiting for the West to arrive for those devices. They're saying, my backyard has very specific needs. It could be cultural or user or visual, and we're going to build just for that. And those companies started getting very big. And China has gotten enormous in this way. And putting aside you know, an important discussion about politics and the trade war, putting that all aside, the fact is massive tech companies with absolutely toe-to-toe talent from what we have in the West with a market that in and of itself is a billion point three, with surrounded by markets around the world that are another new billions, you know, they have to get up and work in that competitive environment. And quite frankly, whatever is going on in America, they're aware of and they're interested by, and sometimes are opportunities to engage, but it's not the top three priorities in the day-to-day existence. So what message is in that for our young viewers and our young listeners who may want to get into the tech space when they graduate, whether it's fintech or prop tech, cloud computing, AI, those that think that Silicon Valley is the be-all end-all. Where do you think the post-COVID future lies in tech and innovation? I think, first of all, there's just tremendous talent and capability and experience in America, which is very well leveraged. COVID has opened up something unbelievably profound that we're only in the early days of figuring out what it means. Because in the old days, One of the things that made Silicon Valley great was what we call the network effect of talent, meaning the more really talented people are there, the more talented people want to be there, the more talented people want to be there. And it has been and is an extraordinary thing. The way There's a reason why so many movies are made in Hollywood, or you could pick other geographic locations that tend to build the idea of the best in the field want to be there. Well, COVID has accelerated something that has been happening already, which is talent is everywhere. And people want to live in different places. They don't want to move necessarily to one geographic location. You can replicate great talent engaging with each other in the very way you and I are doing it right now with digital devices. And that means across America, let alone across the world, there is now all sorts of different opportunities that don't aggregate necessarily around one geographic hub. And what I would tell young people today is there's plenty of work to be done here and plenty of amazing problems to be solved here. But you want to start thinking global day one. In the old days, you thought global at some point. If your company got big enough and you expanded within a domestic market, you might think there are other markets you could test into that are either geographically proximate or you just think they're big market opportunities. You can start thinking global day one. Global new customers, new ways of insight are one click away. Talent is one click away. And you can reach this and engage with this in a way that was simply almost technologically, infrastructurally impossible only a few years ago. And I think, frankly, the young generation is knowing as they come into this, yes, they can build skills. Yes, there are amazing opportunities in big cities in America, in Boulder, Colorado, to New York, to Silicon Valley, to Austin, Texas, or whatever. 
But man, there's amazing stuff happening in Beijing and Jakarta and Cairo and London and Sao Paulo and Mexico City. And these are there's a new way to open yourself to be available to that. And when we're allowed to, I could not encourage people enough to actually go physically and begin to learn it by touching it and feeling it and seeing it directly. And what about learning the languages before they leave school? So this is a really unbelievably powerful question because I'm not great with languages overall. I've got little pieces of things, but now the strength and diversity of my travel means by definition, I will not master uh, multiple languages. And I think it's embarrassed me at one level because I think there's nothing more respectful than when you are in someone else's house to show that you care enough to learn a little bit of their language or speak their language clearly. And certainly for people who want to commit to a region, I think it's very important. The reality is now between technology and the fact that particularly in my world of startups and technology, English is a lingua franca across it, that there's still unbelievable opportunity to complement things. So for example, when I was in China, I relied on WeChat, which is the conversational and paid capability, of course, one of the two major ones in China. But I actually used it as a direct communication device everywhere that I went. So I never got lost. I never had trouble communicating with everyone because there's perfect. I don't speak a word of Chinese and I certainly don't read the language. And it was not perfect. It was not the same like you and I are having a conversation now, but it was unbelievably effective. People respected my attempts to kind of speak to them on, that, on their terms, not to expect them. They have to figure out what I'm navigating in English. And so the answer to your question is, I think it's still important, but it's going to be important in different ways. And there are other ways to shore it up. And with companies and technology like Duolingo, and I've been pitched a bunch of really amazing AI language things that are coming our way. The ability to really get on top of the language has become better and easier and faster than ever before. It'll be some combination of, I think, all these things. But what it really falls under the ages is, are you being respectful of the place in whose you are their guest? And I think that's the way to probably start with it. And there'll be many different components of which language is one. Okay, fair enough. Well, I actually use Duolingo and I've been getting hanged by it all day today because I have not done my Chinese lesson yet today. <laughs> Good for you. That's awesome. Do you like it? I do. I do. It's actually a little too easy for me, and I'm not able to leapfrog to a yeah. more challenging level. So you have to kind of work through it linearly. And fortunately, my Chinese is not beginner, but I have to, I'm still working my way through a lot of the basic lessons right now. So that's interesting. Awesome. So what kind of a venture could you give us a, a window into, Chris, in terms of an investment that Next Billion has made? I know you've made them in the Philippines, in Mexico, in many countries around the world to give us a window into the type of startup that you're looking to put your money behind. At one level, and this has certainly historically been the way that a lot of investors coming into these new markets have thought of the world, is here you have these places which have only recently become relatively digitally engaged, and they don't have a lot of the basic services that we take for granted. And so there was a term that was always a little bit pejorative or insulting in a way, but a little bit descriptive, which is there's a whole bucket of companies they call copycats, which means that if you, know, you built an e-commerce company successful in America, well, you could replicate that in Latin America. Or if you have ride sharing in America, you could replicate that in another market. The reason why I think it's an unfortunate term is in reality, these entrepreneurs who have built what you might want to call the Uber of whatever, they're not just Ubers of whatever. They're incredibly sensitive to the local market. 
They have all sorts of innovation and user experiences which are unique there. It's not merely that they're in local language. They actually completely understand local context. And these companies are becoming enormous. So for example, the largest ride-sharing company in the Middle East is a company called Kareem that went absolutely toe-to-toe with Uber. Uber could not beat it. And in fact, Uber decided to buy it for $3.2 billion because they knew they understood something on the ground that they could not do on their own. In the Southeast Asia, there are in fact two ride-sharing companies called Grab and Gojek, uh, which I you know, know very, very well. But they're not just ride-sharing companies. They're actually what they call now super apps, which means they have all other kinds of services like mobile payments and booking tickets to theater events and other things, all in an experience. And by the way, Uber ended up leaving Southeast Asia. They ended up buying a little stake in Grab, but they couldn't actually just sort of run off with it because this understanding of local nuance and how to navigate it is such a powerful thing. The second bucket is that many of these different parts of the world have very unique needs that folks in America are not thinking about. So for example, I'm an investor in a company called Twiga in Kenya. In Kenya right now, anyone who's ever been there knows that there are something like 150,000 fruit and vegetable stands all across Nairobi alone, the capital of the country. Every morning, the shop owners get up at four o'clock in the morning. They walk two hours to one wholesale market. They get some fruits and vegetables. They walk it back. They sell their inventory one time, and that's all they can do. Twiga came in with some data science and technology and said, we could actually arrange this in such a way that food could be delivered right to your store. In fact, with the data that we have, we could know when you stock out and get you more food to sell more so your business can grow. With the data that we create, we can figure out ways to lend you produce or other things so that you can grow your business. And it's just an incredible model that will I think, span throughout not only Kenya and Africa, but other rising markets. And in fact, many rising markets have versions of it that have pitched me of late. And the fact is, there isn't anybody I know in America thinking about solving that problem. So these are unique problems and unique opportunities in these markets that excite me no end, because effectively they're saying, let me find a problem that's really messy to solve. And once I can figure out the messiness of it, I can layer the fact that everyone has access to technology. I can use technology to scale it quickly. And you build something that's actually never been there before. And now we're even talking about new kinds of technologies like machine learning and AI, which are unleashing a whole new generation of either efficiencies for these kinds of companies I've described or brand new companies and things like telemedicine and online education literally everywhere in the world. So these are the kinds of things that I think about and see every day. Well, as I said in the introduction, the introduction that you didn't hear because it's pre-recorded, <laughs> until I was preparing to do this interview, Chris, I had never heard of PropTech, which is shorthand for property-related technology. And one of the PropTech startups that Next Billion Ventures has invested in is Propsy, a Vietnamese-based startup that guides consumers in sort of a soup-to-nuts way through a real estate transaction. What was it about Propsy that made you and your colleagues say, yeah, this is where we want to put our money? Every entrepreneurial venture begins with one foundational question, which is, is a woman or man running that the person you want to back? It really starts there. In the case of Propsy and other companies that we've looked at, we thought this was a very interesting entrepreneur who's very tenacious and cannot be slowed down. And, you know, there's just a lot of really exciting things about some of the traction that he built and what was going on there. But in another way, Propsy is a perfect example of the kind of three continuum that I described before, because the fact is, you know, a lot of people know the company Zillow in the United States and there are a lot of Compass. There are a lot of these prop tech companies in the United States that have been very successful and very large. 
So there's no reason why the ability to buy and sell more efficiently and more cost effectively should not happen everywhere in the world. So that's one kind of broad behavior. But secondly, in Vietnam, the dynamics are very different. There's a lot of access to data that simply doesn't exist the way it does in America. Access to technology is different. People actually like a human touch. And so the Propsy CEO realized, and he actually has a lot of employees who literally are meeting physically with people on a regular basis to get them comfortable with a transaction that they then can take digitally in ways that are very unique and sensitive to the culture, not only of Vietnam, but other parts of Southeast Asia and emerging markets. And thirdly, he's building all these unbelievable data sets of people buying and selling properties and can lay on really interesting aspects of machine learning that's going to allow him to make the transaction more relevant and more efficient going forward. And when you can find that, Troika, there's no guarantee you're going to succeed because at the end of the day, what you really are hoping is that woman or man will break out. And there are other prop tech companies in Vietnam, and there are plenty of others in Southeast Asia. It's possible a Chinese prop tech company might come there. American prop tech companies are looking at all the markets we're in. Competition is there. But if you have a shot to go behind that woman or man that could be that number one or number two player in a market, well, you're going to make a tremendous amount of impact and be very successful. And these are the kinds of things that you really think about in order to make that decision to actually put money and time, mentorship and support to any woman or man who's trying to build something that was not there before. Terrific. Okay. So before we get into some of the various ventures that you've been a part of over the past 30 years that you've been a part of building, including being among the pioneers of online news, which I had not realized before, leading the Washington Post and Newsweek Interactive for four years. I want to flashback, Chris, to when you were in college, when you were an undergrad. You went to Harvard as an undergrad, and your major was, drum history. roll, please. History. Yeah, diplomatic history. Yeah, that's true. And you had a minor in ancient history. Did you know what you were going to do with that major, Chris, when you graduated? Well, you know, I came to my education as an education in many ways. And I've loved history. I've loved the context it gives. I love thinking about what has kind of got us here and how that may affect what might get us elsewhere. Now, remember, I'm old, you know, you've pointed out I'm old enough that the technology and the internet was really in its, its relative infancy then. And while I'd done many entrepreneurial things as a kid, I have to tell you, I failed as a, a DJ and some other business that I had done. By the time I was in college, I, I knew that I wanted to go to business, but I wanted to leverage the learning and the education I have to two fundamental things. One is how could I then just take this broad context and begin to learn elements of business that could take me in, in different directions to allow me to run things myself. But also at the same time, I always thought part of my life would be giving back. And in those days, I thought at some point I'd want to do business, but also do public service. And so my studies in college were very much a framework to both those ends in many ways. And it was uh, wonderful. You are, I think, one of the first people that I've interviewed, Chris, and I have now interviewed hundreds of people who was that strategic in their undergraduate studies, that they were looking at it as building a framework for their future. I mean, that's really extraordinary. What advice do you have for our viewers and our young listeners who are probably stressed to the max right now, trying to reverse engineer their studies to meet the COVID circumstances, the COVID economy that they're going to be graduating into, whether at the end of 2020 or the spring of 2021. What do you think 
the best advice is that you can give them about the way they should look at their studies? So this is, look, a very, very complicated time and unprecedented time. I've been through four major crises in my life, and, and they all, everyone is different. Everyone, when you're in it, seems it could be potentially existential, and that you, this, all of them kind of pale in comparison to what we have now. And so at one level, it's incredibly natural to be anxious to think about what it might mean, because we're all trying to figure out what that might mean. But at the same time, one of the things you have to keep in mind is that we will work through this, right? We'll figure this out. There'll be some behaviors that we go back to because that's where our comfort level are. And there are going to be opportunities that are going to be very, very different. And being alert to that kind of thinking of what comes next, I think, could be very, very powerful. And in a way, one of the things that is fairly clear to me coming out of this is that so much that was happening back when these students were already starting high school or college or whatever is now only happening faster. What, what is happening in COVID is acceleration. So a year ago, we all, we all, at least on this podcast, have been buying and selling things online. We've been using mobile money or Venmo or whatever. We've probably taken some classes online because we want to do it. We probably did some medical engagement online. But now within about two months, hundreds of millions of people who were suspect of this or not quite ready for it or were coming there kind of gradually, all of a sudden had no choice to get into it. And so that means that things that you were thinking about six months ago, nine months ago, are still not only very true, not only will have new patina about it that you can think about, but have been accelerated to levels that you can engage in. And when I think when it comes to your thinking about particularly your studies in school, is in many respects, just ask yourselves, what are you doing academically, both technically and tactically in the courses that you're choosing that will allow you to function in this new world? And at the same time, what passions are you developing about where you want to engage in this world and have this kind of framework that you described before that's so powerful? It has not escaped my notice that when I was a kid, my college had something like 350 history majors. My daughter just graduated from there, and I think there were something like 70 history majors. So many young people have pivoted now to computer science and data science and all. And I think that's fantastic. And I think these are very relevant skills at one level that are very important. But forcing yourself to have this broader contextual view, taking some history courses, learning to write very well and communicate well, take a sense of how history has navigated previous activities, getting a sense of the beauty that comes in design and art that you have. These will also be very leverageable as you decide what problems you want to solve with the technical skills that also need to be part of what you're doing. I think, in a college experience right now. Fantastic. So what was your first job when you graduated, and how did you get it? I'm almost embarrassed to say it at one level, except that it has a funny story on the how did you get it thing, because I think it's an, there's an instructive element in it. I went to work in investment banking, which is a very traditional thing for a lot of people to do. I never thought I was going to be an investment banker, but I did think that this was going to be an opportunity for a history major to effectively get someone to pay me to learn some pretty hard business analytic stuff to learn how businesses are thinking strategically about raising money and engaging money through the lens of a chief financial officer, but also more strategic than that. And it's in a very intense environment. My Literally, my first week of work, I worked something like 115 hours, and I don't think I ever worked less than 75. And so it tested me in the sense of, of service, of being there earlier than everyone else, leaving later than everyone else, and asking people if I could help them. So there was a lot of things that I knew that were going to be valuable that I was not going to do it. But in some respects, I did like many people do who go to university. I went through a lot of recruiting processes. But one of the things that I've learned in the world is that if you have someone who knows you and can vouch for you and can filter you for who you are, there's a huge impact in that. And it's, in fact, a gift. I know whenever someone I trust, whose judgment I trust, comes to me and say, 
you need to hire this woman. I know her. She's great. I mean, think about the value in that compared to just having a resume appear as a thousand resumes overall. And I had a mentor, a remarkable man who I still rely on many times to think about world. His name is Harold Tanner. You've never heard of him. But he actually was a, the leader of investment banking for the firm that I worked in. But he's also a man of unbelievable integrity and character who's knew me for many years, knew my weaknesses, knew where I could develop, but also knew what I could deliver. And he didn't make the decision, but he was able to give a verification of who I was that was powerful. And the reason why I tell you the story is funny was after I'd gotten the job offer and I accepted and everything was great, two months later, I got a rejection letter. And what was that? The rejection letter was in a process where I was one of a thousand resumes, I didn't get it. But where someone was able to describe what made me unique or some aspects was there, I did. And I've taken that throughout my life. I've realized that building relationships with people who you connect with, who you trust, is something which is very, very powerful. What advice do you have, Chris, for our young viewers and listeners about how to go about building that deep relationship with a prospective mentor? You've just used the most important term in that, which is it's a deep relationship. One of the things that you learn very quickly, and I watch for throughout my career, but particularly now that I'm sort of in a, in a mentoring kind of stage of my career, is some people treat you transactionally. And everything in business and life is an element of a transaction. I'm buying or selling a good, or I'm hiring you and developing you. I mean, there is an element of transaction, and you can't lose track of that. But there's a night and day difference between treating someone transactionally, treating them and engaging with them again, of being of service. It's not just about what they can do for you, but what can you collectively do to make impact or make a situation better? That this is a long journey. We might not figure out anything to do right now, but we'll meet again another day. And when we do, we know that we can trust each other. We know that we have integrity and we can build things through. And I have found, I've been blessed by a lot of mentors and I found every one of them, the mistake I made is sometimes if I forgot them a little bit and I didn't engage with them and I actually inadvertently treated them transactionally and when it was so powerful is when no matter how much time passed, I knew that we could check in with each other. And if there was an opportunity to make something of impact together, we had a depth and understanding and a trust that allowed both of us to really have the impact that we want in whatever element that we wanted to have that impact. Your LinkedIn profile notes that you were an executive secretary for policy during the Bush Quail presidential campaign in 1988. So that must have been after you left the investment banking experience. And that was, I think it was during a presidential election cycle, like what we're going through right now. You then moved into a special assistant role at the State Department, working for then Secretary of State James Baker. You did that for a year. And then you went to Harvard Business School. Why did you make the decision to leave government and go to business school? I'd actually been accepted at business school from investment banking, and my plan was to go to it. And it was actually my mentor who had a very dear friend who was working with that administration or before it became an administration and knew that I wanted a career that was a balance of public service and this. And he said, look, business school isn't going anywhere. I know this guy. He's one of the most wonderful people. And he was, by the way, a man named Gary McDougall. He said, by the way, this was in the spring of that year, which you'll remember, but the kids won't remember unless they're good at history. George Bush, the father, was 18 points behind his opponent. So he said to me, he's going to lose. So then you can go travel the world and then go to business school. And I'm like, well, I don't know if I want to lose, but let me see what happens. So the long and the short of it is I joined this campaign. I got very close to the people of Secretary Baker and, and his team who ended up going to the State Department. And lo and behold, we won. And the world was changing. 
and I say this to people and they don't really believe it, but it's actually true. Nothing prepared me for the internet more than those two. It was actually more two, like two years in the State Department, not because of the bureaucracy, which was impressive, not because of the technology, which was antiquated, but because in those two years I was there as a 21-year-old, pretty much every rule of the world that I thought my grandchildren would live with disappeared. The Berlin Wall fell, the Soviet Union disappeared, Nelson Mandela was released. It was things like this. And so I realized that I was going to take from that a rewiring. No longer was I thinking of the world as a steady thing, but I was thinking of the world as stuff that's going to change all the time. And I had to figure out how to change with it. And it prepared me perfectly when the internet became a big part of my life. So after you graduated from HBS, and maybe not directly, I think a few years later, you became the head of business development the treasurer at the Washington Post Company in 1996. Why did you take that job, Chris? And what did you learn in that position that maybe positioned you for the next job? My goal had been that I wanted to run something and I was becoming progressively more interested in technology and its ramifications on society rich large. And I'd actually went back to work a little bit longer in a presidential campaign. And then I did some investment work after that with a couple of people who were from the campaign. But I had my ears and eyes on how I could do things in uh, running things. And the president of the Washington Post Company was a guy who became a dear friend and a mentor to me. We got to know each other. We got to brainstorming about a lot of different ideas. And one day he turned to me over dinner and he said, look, I'd love to have you as part of what we're doing. He said, your instincts about investing and all these different experiences you have would be perfect in a strategic role. But if you take that strategic role, I promise you, in a year or 18 months, I'll spin you out and you'll run one of our companies or companies that we have a investment in. And he was good to his word. And within 18 months, I was running first this company called Legislate that they owned a major share in, and then eventually ran WashingtonPost.com and the other media assets. That's right. And after, I guess, since you're moving forward in your, in your career there, you spent, I guess, a year at Legislate, and then you moved into your position with the Washington Post Newsweek Interactive, did you bring it online or was it online already? No, there were people, real pioneers who really had started doing the first rounds of it from virtually it being a PDF experience that was literally thrown up in a digital experience to what I inherited, which was a company really trying to figure itself out. It was figuring out how could it run effectively and efficiently with a lot of competition that had already been coming to it and how could it still be sensitive to the traditions of a business that was now beginning to struggle because of the changes that were threatening it. And so it was a very thorny, very challenging role in some respects where I was an entrepreneur, not an entrepreneur. My job was not just to build something unleashed, but I had to both navigate these new markets I was in in an entrepreneurial way, but I also had to engage with the existing business to try to make sure that we could bring it into the new century without possibly crushing it. And it was hard, but it was also fascinating and it was one of the more interesting periods of my life. Well, you were there for four years, you took a year off, and then you stepped into an entirely different industry into health. And you co-founded what became one of the leading content and social consumer health and wellness interactive platforms in the U.S. called healthcentral.com. What was it that attracted you to that industry? You had been in media tech. And then you well, went into in a health way, tech. Well, in a way, it wasn't health tech. In a way, it was actually, in some respects, a media company with a new social dynamic as social media was becoming unleashed at that point. And there's an intellectual answer to your question, and there's the spiritual answer in a way. 
The intellectual answer is I've learned a lot about how audiences interact in very new ways at WashingtonPost.com. And that, for example, you can remember this from the news business, people used to obsess with the homepage or they'd obsess with the front page or however you want to call it, spent a lot of time agonizing about it. But in point of fact, most people through search or social media or whatever never went to the homepage. They went to very specific content they wanted in their terms. And I began to think to myself, the way the media world will play out is not about this kind of traditional, let's just tell you what to do. But people wanted to find what they wanted to find on their terms when they wanted to find it. And I wanted to build a new company that would be thinking about that area. And health, of course, is precise, right? Nobody who is wrestling breast cancer necessarily worries about what someone is trying to get through a pregnancy or what have you. This is a very targeted and a very specific area that would lend itself to, I thought, a very powerful business model, all of which ended up being true. But the thing that was more spiritual about it, the thing that was more about the problem in my teeth that I wanted to solve was I'd gone through a period, which every one of these young people have not gone through, will go through at some point, where I lost one of my best friends to a battle with bipolar disorder. He had uh, taken his own life eventually after a long battle. And then a family member had died from metastatic lung cancer. And in those experiences, I dug all through the internet to try to find ways how I could be more supportive to my friends and family. And I found buried these little tiny narrow communities that were very specific that talked exactly to the problems that I was trying to figure out how to be better. They talked to me as a caregiver, not just a person going through it. And I never knew who these people were in these communities. I really knew nothing about them. But the empathy was unbelievable. The insight they shared was unbelievable. But they were so hard to find. And so one of the theses about Health Central is what if I made it easy to find? What if the team really thought about building these communities that would have content, it would have health information, it would have a business model that required advertising and things. But what if we got millions of patients, expert patients, we call them, together to share how you live your life on a day-to-day basis, whether you're running a marathon or having a baby or having to navigate something like a very serious disease. And that was the essence. There was a very strong business case and a shift happening in customer behavior that I was intrigued by, but I went all in because there was a problem in my teeth that I had experienced that I wanted to solve for myself and for others. This was the pattern recognition that you talked about during the espresso shots. So you were able to see the overlapping commonalities between the business world that you were familiar with and now an industry that you weren't familiar with yet. Exactly so. Two final questions for you, Chris. And these are questions I try to ask all of my guests. And the first one is, if you could share a time in your professional life when you struggle. You've also talked about the importance of perseverance. You haven't used the word grit, but that's what you're getting at. I'm trying to show our young viewers and listeners that even people like Chris Schroeder who has experienced tremendous success in his life, has also had to deal with really tough times. And you may have fallen down, you may have failed. I have certainly failed numerous times. But the importance is to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and keep going. And through that experience, Chris, was there a lesson that you may have learned in the process? I mean, in a way, you answered my question for me in talking about it that happens all the time. And I think a lot of times people think, particularly in life, generally speaking, but certainly in my field of startups, that like that, and we're trained sometimes to think that life should always be going in a straight line in an upward trajectory. And we, we create myths around people who've done that. And they seem like they've never really struggled and they just 
and we oddly aspire to that, but it's never the reality or almost never the reality. Life is for you mathematically inclined young people. Life is much more like a sine wave than it is a straight arrow. You hope the sine wave arcs in a direction where you want to be and what you do. But it is a combination of unbelievable, exciting moments and just unbelievably low times. And what I found in life in myself, but also in other people that I've surrounded myself with and certainly entrepreneurs that I've supported is you only know so much about people when things are going great. Like everyone loves everyone when things are going great. You really learn about that woman or man when you're in the low end of the trough of the sine wave. And how are they doing? How do they treat other people? Are they acting with integrity? Are they blaming everyone around them? Or are they trying to do everything that they can just to bring people through it in the best way that we can? I had episode after episode of this in all the companies that I've run. In the case of Health Central, there was a time when I thought we were going to run out of money. And we did all this fundraising and we were about to raise the money and it was going to be great. And then all of a sudden, the crisis happened in 2008, 2009. And I thought for a month, it was all going to go away. And for reasons outside of my control, I was going to have to lay off a bunch of people and I was going to have to explain to the world why I had failed and all. We ended up pulling that one out, but you have all the navigation and the psychological ramifications Mm -hmm. of that very powerfully. If I had to bucket, though, in a little bit of a different arc, the failure that I'm I'm most embarrassed by, but also one that I most learned by, is a failure of building and working with people and hiring folks. There are times at the end of the day that you get caught up, particularly in a startup, of trying to make people do things that are not necessarily the right fit for them. And often you want to blame that person like they didn't work out. Well, actually, usually is it didn't work out. That sometimes you have a baseball player playing soccer, or maybe the dynamic in the culture wasn't the fit that you thought would you be. But more often than not, I mean, every so often, I've had an employee that tried to rob me or do whatever. But more often than not, either there's an opportunity to rethink communication and try to give someone an opportunity to do more. But many other times, the fit is not right. and You either have to find a different fit for the person or, frankly, for both people's sake, it's good to move them on. And there's a cliche in business that actually every CEO I know would agree with. And the cliche is that often you hire too quickly and you fire too slowly. And in fact, to take the time to make sure that fit is right, that a culture is being built when you can, and to realize that while it's scary sometimes to lose talent, if you have a woman or man doing something that's not working out, not only is it unfair to them and unfair to the company, it's actually unfair to your culture. You're effectively signaling to the culture of your company that you're willing to accept things that are not what your actions are supposedly trying to deliver. And I always treated people with respect. I hope people always felt that I did. But I think that there were many times where I could have gotten ahead of it, been more responsive and more respectful. And, you know, you try to do better every time. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Chris. Final question. If you could go back to college and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? You know, times were different then. And so there's a lot of kind of technical things and tactical things that I might have done a little bit differently or I would speak to myself in a different way because of it. But I think probably if there's one macro thing that I could say is we all have a North Star. There are things that we really love and we naturally incline towards. And we often listen to people or we listen to other advice that will pull us off of the North Star because it's what we ought to do or it's the branded thing that's easy to explain or whatever. And I think I fell into that from times. And I think a lot of young people fall into that time. And I think constantly, it's, the North Star will evolve and it will, to break the analogy, it will shift sometimes a bit in the sky. But a lot of the core things you value, the people that you want to be with, the impact you want to make, the things that you care about really tend to have a consistency to them. And to say to myself, don't worry what people next to you are thinking about. Don't worry 
if they seem to be succeeding at a time when you aren't succeeding. Stick to your North Star. Think to your impact. Be of service. Be kinder to yourself. But on the other hand, don't give up, but also don't give in. I mean, sometimes people are willing to make excuses for themselves. And you got to toughen up. Like, you know, this is a world where showing stick to itness in a time when it's, there's so many options available to you is, in fact, a tremendous asset. And I think that would have been the dialogue I would have had with myself. I still would have majored in history, I want you to know. In some respects, my daughter, if I may, is the better example of this, because my daughter in this day and age was a magnificent history major in medieval history. But at the same time, she took very difficult math and statistics, and she actually worked the whole time for a startup virtually and got some skills working on that. She loved kind of consulting and advising and has a wonderful connective tissue between how research in history is actually not dissimilar to research there. And now she's got a, she's about to start a career actually in business consulting. And so there are many ways to get there and keep your North Star in mind and realize that you can make those things apply if you actually are focused on doing so. I love that. And what I have come to, I guess, crystallize in my own mind that I've been sharing with my fans out there, those who listen regularly, or you may not have heard it before if you're not a regular listener, but that they should think about their majors rather than as being like the tiny house that you're forced to live in for the rest of your life. It's the foundation of a professional skyscraper that you're going to be building over the course of your life with each new job and each new career, just adding a new floor in that skyscraper. So you were way ahead, Chris, in the way that you thought about your time in college and you were already building that foundation or that structure that that you just filled in over the course of the last 30 plus years. But for so many of our young listeners who have much more noise to contend with today than Chris and I did when we were in school, please try to block it out and listen to your own heart, find your North Star, as Chris just said, and follow it. Chris, I want to thank you so, so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. For those who are interested in learning more about how to break into the world of tech entrepreneurship, please check out the show notes. Check out Chris's bio for a link to Chris's Espresso Shots episode if that's already dropped. Chris, thank you. You are such a remarkable guy, and I have learned a tremendous amount from this interview. Thank you so much. Well, the thanks are to you and all the impact you have on young people in this program that you've built because you've really, what you've effectively done is you've told people they're not alone and that there are many experiences they could leverage from many different areas as they begin to aggregate their truths and find that North Star you describe. So I'm honored. Thank you very much for including me. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.